Hello and welcome back to the Undercut Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Team Albus Daily, and I am joined, as always, by the Milk to My Indy 500 winner, Ellie Mae Taylor, and the Hard to My Wet Weather Racing, Jesse Billington. How are you both? I've had, you know, a standard day. Woke up this morning um, and had to save a hedgehog because it was trying to get through a fence that clearly couldn't get through. Went to go get my hair done today. Uh, the road is closed because the school is on fire, so I had to take the back roads. So, pretty standard day. Not too bad. I mean, I'm a bit sunburnt. Obviously, Ellie Mae and I spent the weekend down at Brands Hatch enjoying some classic motor racing, got all the classic F1 cars out there. So that was a good bit of fun, but I've got a wicked sunburn from that. My throat is sore from shouting over it. The chimney's got a hole in its exhaust. I'm very tired, and I've got work again tomorrow. So, yeah, mixed bag. But you did get to meet my dad. Yeah, true. He's quite nice. Hello, Twilly May's dad, who's probably listening to this one and gets edited and put out. Oh, we've got a very mixed bag here, which is probably what we had over the weekend in a lot of ways as well to represent the changing conditions in the race. And we're obviously back here to review all the action from this weekend's Monaco Grand Prix, and that's as good a segue as we're going to get. But before we get into the race itself, we're going to have to go into what the hell has happened, which we just have some Monaco-related news on this one. And Jesse, you're going to start us off because McLaren had a special livery and it was their triple crown livery. Yeah, Monaco ran the, well, McLaren ran a triple crown livery for Monaco. Obviously, Monaco makes up one third of the triple motor racing triple crown alongside the Indy 500 and the 24 Hours of Le Mans. So they were running, I think the nose cone was painted black in homage to the uh, McLaren F1 that won the 24 Hours of Le Mans, I want to say 1994, something around there. Uh, the middle section was white as a sort of reference to the uh, was one of the Marlboro McLarens that won in the F1's uh, Monaco Grand Prix in the 80s. And then the tail section was sort of a yellowy-orange akin to their Indy cars. So, yeah, really interesting livery. Looked completely like a cigarette. So we're back to the old days of cigarette advertising on Formula 1 cars. And yeah, I, I quite liked it as a livery, actually. I thought it was quite cool. I wouldn't necessarily run it every weekend, but as a one-off for Monaco, where they seem to enjoy a, a good special livery McLaren, it was a wise choice. I liked it. Early May, did you like it? Yeah, kind of the same as Jesse. I thought it just looked like a cigarette. So I'll be the decide. I'll be the the breakaway from the podcast as per usual. Though I thought it just looked like shit. <laughs> I thought when Williams came out, which we'll get to in a minute with you, I thought that's how you do some special looking liveries, and all four of their options are a lot nicer for me. I just I looked at McLaren and thought, maybe you should spend less time on deliveries, more time making the car go a bit quicker and you get your priorities sorted there. But it was amusing, at least, that it did look like a cigarette. I don't know if that was intentional or not. And if I kind of hope it was, because that would just kind of elevate it slightly for me. Yeah, mixed bag on that one. But it'll be interesting to see what um, Williams do. They've got a special livery lined up, don't they, anyway? They have. In partnership with their sponsor, Golf, Williams have chosen to run a unique livery at Singapore, Japan and Qatar on their FW45 and their race suits. They have created four iconic blue and orange liveries, and it is up to us, the fans, to pick out our favourite livery, which will solidify itself in a part of Formula One history. There are two knockout stages. Round one is now currently live and will close on the 4th of June before round two opens on the 5th. The two winning liveries will then battle for your vote in the final between the 12th and 23rd of June. The winning livery will be announced on Wednesday, the 12th of July, right before the Goodwood Festival of Speed, where it will be on display. But if you can't get yourself down there, we will be there to capture the unique livery. So keep your eyes peeled on our socials where we, and that's the role we, I mean, I will be covering it. 
Hang on, no, I'm there on the Thursday. So what days are being unveiled? It's being unveiled on the Wednesday, but I imagine that you wouldn't be helping on the socials, so it'd be down to me. Well, I can probably take you some photos early on. I might be able to. I just, I'm, they don't give me access to the Instagram. I'm the guy that runs the Twitter. I don't run the Instagram. So If only you could send us pictures. I can, and I often do. Oh, there we go, then. <laughs> Anyhow. Speaking of pictures. Yes, there's a, one other little bit of Monaco news, which I don't know if you two will have seen this in full yet or not. And if, okay, mm. good, you have done. Because I happened upon it quite accidentally live, which was brilliant. I was turning off the Formula 2 a bit earlier than I meant to and saw this excellent moment, which uh, now everyone's fam- favourite person from Monaco, Claudia Albuquerque, just deserves a shout out for some excellent television coverage and is quite possibly single-handedly the best thing Sky's done in a long, long time, um, which is just the brilliance of live TV there. And photographer, she's been working for a magazine in Paris and she's been doing photographs since she was 15. She's 89 now and just just having a nice old time by the look of it and then casually hitting on Martin Brundle and trying to get his phone number, which is just... That's why we go to Monaco. You can't, you don't get that anywhere else. And I love the fact that you hear all this stuff all the time with other Grand Prix where Martin or some other well-known F1 person is getting the, the, the side shoulder or cold shoulder or whatever, or they're not allowed to talk to someone. And then Monaco, and he gets hit on by an 89-year-old photographer. It's just, you can't write it. It's brilliant. I mean, you're speaking about people. She's a woman I aspire to be. Not the hitting on Martin (laughs) Bonaparte, but the... uh, No, you go for the the junior. (laughs) The, um, yeah, just the... Being a photographer from like 15 to the age of 89, I mean, that's an incredible feat. Yeah, I mean, the things she will have seen, she said she photographed, obviously, the sort of ascension of uh, Crown Prince of Monaco and the things she would have seen covering sort of both French news and equally seeming to have her foot in the world of motorsport as well, both covering, obviously, things in France. You've got sort of the incredible motorcycle racing, the endurance racing in France, and then on top of that, probably pretty good access to the Monaco Grand Prix across the years. She's been doing that since she was 15. She's going to have been hanging around for a fair old while. She will have seen the best part off the top of her head about sort of 70 years of F1. She'll have seen it from pretty much its inception in the principality through to present day. But... um, one of the interesting things that I was about to lead on to, and I completely forgot now, um, was that was it. Speaking of people getting the cold shoulder in Formula One, did anyone spot um, Jackie Stewart going over and speaking to the security guard that turned him away in Miami? He brought him a beer over to whatever thing he was sort of security guarding and was sort of like, no hard feelings, buddy, but I'm the champ around here. No one says no to Mr. F1. So that was that was kind of cool. And, and also Jackie's. don't do that again. <laughs> yeah, one, don't do that again. Two, know this face. Go watch at least three years of Formula One back in the late 60s, early 70s. You'll recognize this face, which I, I quite like. That was Jackie Stewart reminding people that Formula One is about the drivers and the teams going racing beyond the celebrities. It's like a quiet old man mafia move there, isn't it? I'm just, I'm just gonna do this nicely, but you do it again, we're gonna have trouble. It's very Sopranos in a way. I quite liked it. Was it a Heineken beer? It was a Heineken beer. I think he'd just gone to stolen it from like a Heineken promotional stand. But the, the point was made, I think. Did you also see that um, Tom Holland waved the checkered flag and he ended no, up... that was Lando Norris. <laughs> multitasking. Uh, 
and in very Tom Holland fashion, hit himself with the flag as he was waving it. I did see that. It was quite good. We had some good flag waving across the weekend. Obviously, we had Tom Holland waving the checkered flag in Monaco. We had Adam Driver sending the Indy cars green at the Indy 500, which just really contrasts with Tim Cook over at Apple, who did the checkered flag for the US Grand Prix last year. Hey, and hey, it was, hey that's an iconic moment. Oh, it was the weakest flag waving possible. Like, the man was just completely disinterested in the whole thing. And then you've got Adam Driver and Tom Holland giving it the absolute most to iconic motorsport occasions you're like see can we have more of that please but we've got the grand prix to go over as well which as is monaco is always the case qualifying is pretty darn important and doesn't always guarantee the result for sunday but is always kind of you're only going to watch one qualifying session of the year watch it at monaco and it did not disappoint at all and it was one of the most kind of not just best qualifying sessions that I think we're going to get this year, but possibly that we've had full stop for a very long time at least. And it was just madness and chaos from the start, which considering it was dry and there wasn't any kind of wet weather, I think it was just 20 cars going at it, hitting the clappers and just trying to survive. It was, I don't, I don't know, it's, it's, it was just great. And yeah, Q1, it was just kind of all over the place. You had... The two McLarens and Yuki Sonoda in the top three at one point. Then you had Alex Albon purposefully, but not purposely, but like genuinely beating Max Verstappen on pace with like five minutes to go for P1. And you're just kind of questioning what the hell's going on. You've got Sainz and Hamilton down in the knockout with only a couple of minutes left. And you're just genuinely concerned that what is going on here and how is this going to actually happen on Sunday? But obviously then it went a little bit back to normal. Perez, I would kind of wishing that his weekend would have gone a bit differently because he overstepped it through Sandoval, ruined the rear of his car. Pretty hard hit as well when you watch it back on the replay from kind of not the front end, you watch from the rear and a proper smack. And um, a lot of rebuilding to do for Red Bull on the Saturday evening. And uh, Hamilton and Sainz were just kind of out of position for, for Q1, but just managed to scrape through the last thing. And Sonoda... I don't know, maybe he just really likes Monaco and something's finally clicking for him, it would appear, in that Alpha Tower at last, maybe. It's kind of he's kind of dragging as much out of it as he can, it would it would seem. And Monaco is whilst it didn't translate for the race necessarily, we'll get there later. In qualifying and for the majority of the race, it was pretty impressive. Q2 was pretty standard, but again, Lewis was kind of adding the drama there because you weren't sure if he was going to make it to Q3 or not. And it's kind of, if this was any other Grand Prix, you're like, ah, it's not the worst thing if he doesn't. But as it's Monaco, you know that you need something pretty calamitous to happen for that to change come Sunday. But then Q3, Norris had kind of broke, it had a little crash, just a little crash in Q2, which then meant that mechanics had to fix his car, which was a 20-minute job that he didn't intend to get him ready for Q3 and out so that he could go and qualify, then impeded by the flare, which didn't help things. And Alonso set the fastest lap, and it looked for just what was a glorious minute and a half or something that he might get pole, and we would finally get him on the top of the grid. And then Max Verstappen ruined everything by getting pole position, which I shouldn't complain too much because I did have that as my prediction, but I would have sacrificed that for you, Jesse, so that you could have had... I don't think you predicted him for pole, but I was hoping first is probably the race win at that point, so I just assumed that was that was fine. I could live with that. But Max did Max. Ocon, though, out of nowhere, Alpine, suddenly 
maybe they're fueled on by anger, him and Gasly, with, uh, with Rossi, with his recent comments and doing all their talking on track now, because I've hoped that that can kind of continue, because if we can have that, then we've got another another team kind of getting up there occasionally enough to make it difficult for everyone else. And a P3 qualifying for him, just darn impressive. Yeah, it's one of those mixed bag qualifying sessions that genuinely shakes up a weekend and produces some interesting results. I think the big thing to think about with with Norris's thing, it's something we'd seen a few drivers doing through the weekend is really hedging their bets with the way these barriers are lined up and taking some very clever liberties with them on the sort of outer edges of the wing end plates. You have these small sort of essentially anti-dive planes and the drivers know that the way they're positioned against the armco means that you can rub that armco without damaging the plate too much or that anti-dive plane because all it does is just slices through any of the sort of banners and hoarding that run alongside it and that was something we saw Norris sort of overstepped the mark on he sort of tapped his was actually track run end damage as he came out of I think it was Lapisine wasn't it as he came through there just a slight touch but with Max he was running that to the most extreme and if you saw pictures of his wheels when he came back into the pit afterwards pretty much all of the facing on the sides of those Pirellis had been worn away because he was he was guard rail riding the entire way around this was like NASCAR shootouts that final lap he was about um, 2.2 seconds. He got it on the last sector and because he was not pulled. looking like he was going to do it at all. And yeah. it was just like, oh, this might be on for Alonso. It might be on the sector three. I'm like, damn it. He pulled a huge amount out through the tail end of sector two and the, out of especially sector three. It was phenomenal. And yeah, the net result we got from that was sublime. And yeah, Leclerc initially P3 was something we were looking, was sort of something that looked great, but equally at the same time, he had, And you were a bit of Leclerc yeah. in Monaco, and that's not how that happens. Leclerc in Monaco, luck doesn't go his way. There was bad communication from the team, and equally they didn't think that anyone else would be coming through on a fast lap at that point in time. And yeah, radio calls just don't work around Monaco because of the way you're running through the buildings, running through the tunnel. So it was, yeah, an unfortunate incident of timing. And equally through the tunnel, you do not have any use of those mirrors. There's not enough light coming through to see a car coming so he was you know stuck in an unfortunate position where he was whatever happened gonna accidentally impede norris it wasn't someone who's going to be really challenging him for a position so it can't have been malicious it was purely but if it was going to happen to anyone it was going to happen to Leclerc. yeah it was sort of sod lord that's the way it was going to fall so yeah it was a, a very good qualifying session certainly one that told a huge melt of the story of the weekend and one we anticipated telling the entirety of the weekend but, yeah. It does also kind of tease other races coming up a little bit more, the more tighter circuits, Singapore in particular, and maybe Vegas. Um, it's hard to tell with Vegas in particular, but just we kind of thought maybe this would be the case in Baku, but I guess there's some wider parts of that track, which in comparison to Monaco and Singapore, um, where there's more room to, there's just more liberties you can take there, whereas Monaco, you, you really can push it only a small amount before you you bin that, and it's a shame that we have to wait until Singapore to get maybe that kind of a qualifying. Again, it'd be interesting to see what we get in Spain and Canada and Austria as the next three. Um, but I don't think we're going to get a qualifying quite that good again for a while. I'd argue Zandvoort might be an interesting one to look for a tight qualifying. Mm. It's been sort of hit and miss with race action, but as a qualifying circuit, especially that really Possibly. tight sort of final sector it's a very narrow circuit where again qualifying really determines your track position come sunday that's going to be one to watch out for when it comes to qualifying i should think and yeah i think it's going to be an interesting mix working forwards how that pans out i think again possibly 
I want to say maybe Mexico as well could be an interesting one for qualifying. Again, well, Mexico needs it, to be fair. Mexico needs it because the racing can often be a bit flat, but you've got that, again, that tight sort of stadium section through the final part. You've got drivers that will be pushing on very hot, very dry tyres towards the end of it. If they're able to extract the most out of the car through a very impressive qualifying, we could see a shake-up. And again, teams that are finally looking to get good one-lap pace, your Alpines coming out of nowhere, your McLarens coming to a bit more of a form, we could see a jumbled-up Q3 uh, sort of later on down the calendar as well. I think Monaco also shows that you have to be precise and push in every single sector. Because obviously, like we were saying, it's max gained all that lap time in sector three and it was partly an amalgamation of max pushing the limits so hard i mean we saw him touch the wall a few times but alonso also didn't have the greatest of sectors threes and um if you see his onboard when he was going into the rascas he went in too early sort of backed out of it and then carried on then turning his steering wheel and that's pretty much where he then lost it so yeah it, if he had, if he hadn't have if that Aston Martin strangely enough hadn't have turned in as well as it as Alonso thought it was not going to do then he, Alonso would have got yeah pole position but I think part of that stems possibly from as Alonso found his rhythm and his sort of form with that car, there could be a part of him that slipped back to his very old driving style he had in the old Renault days when he had the sort of vertical mass dampers in the front end of the car, where he used to set that car up for understeer and it would heat up the front tyres to a point that they would really grip and then he'd have essentially a second bite at turning. And that's where that Renault really had its advantage was that it was suited to his sort of loose front end style that you would sort of take one bite at the cherry and then take a second and the car responds on the second turn in. And I think what's been spoken about a lot through the Monaco weekend is the fact that drivers find this rhythm, they find this form where you sort of get into a pattern and all of a sudden it takes just one small thing for it to go wrong. And as track evolution steps up so quickly in Monaco, as the sort of temperatures come down, the track finds a bit of its grip, it's not so sort of harsh on the tyres. In that final sector where you've got those tyres really nice and hot coming through, the very fast entry to Lapisine, you get to Rescas, you chuck it in, and all of a sudden that front end's got a lot more bite than you're expecting, possibly through a slight understeer on the exit of La Piscine. that front end would have just, I don't want to say caught it out, him out, it's Fernando Alonso, very little catches him out these days, but it would have been just enough to sort of see him have to readjust that sort of turn in to get a decent line, not only through Raskas, then you've got Anton Nogues and the crucial run to the start-finish line. Whereas when you look at the staff... So there's no room to breathe, essentially. You've got to absolutely yeah. nail all of it. So even if you realise that you've made a small error by the time you've realised that you're probably already three or four turns away from there and you've had to make sure that you've nailed all of those. Yes, yeah, there's there's such a little so small window for slippage that the moment you make any sort of mistake, you're, you're sort of fighting that mistake for the next lap. And when you're under race conditions, you'll be possibly fighting that mistake for another lap further on because it's going to be something that's exaggerated by a field around you. At least in qualifying, you back off, you take another lap to collect yourself and then you go again. But speaking of the race, we obviously... Say there, was, there was a bigger window for slippage on the sun. 
a very big window for slippage on Sunday with the changing conditions, something that I think a lot of people had been sort of reluctant to predict going into it. A lot of the commentary teams have been going, oh, the rain's probably going to come off the race. And a lot of teams going, no, we could be seeing rain just at the very well, end. We were pretty denied even while it was happening at times. Yeah, it, it was, it almost took a lot of teams by surprise. It was sort of something that had been building up behind the mountains. And eventually there was enough of this sort of storm front to just move over and absolutely soak the eastern edge of the circuit, moving its way through. To this very interesting point where one half of the circuit was wet and then the other half of the circuit was still dry. We had drivers saying, uh, sort of teams saying, look, turns sort of four, five, and six are going to be survival turns. You've just got to get yourself through the sort of Mirabeau's and Port and through Portier. If you can survive that, it's then dry for the rest of the track. You can do this. But then that rain front kept moving through and all of a sudden we saw the race completely turn on its head. We know the standings at this point, it was, of course, Verstappen P1, Alonso P2, and Ocon P3. But that really doesn't tell half the story. And Timo, you've put this down as your race of the season so far, your Grand Prix of the season. Admittedly, it's a low bar, but... And I kind of hope it doesn't stay at the top because that means we're going to have a really second kind of two thirds of the season. But for Monaco, for what we normally expect and for what we kind of, I always treat it as, it's not a race race. It's individual drivers versus the track. And if they happen to come across other drivers, then we'll see if we can get past them. But it's not really about that. It's kind of just, let's see if you can survive Monaco. And that's the reward within itself. So the fact that we got a bit of craziness in there as well, and we didn't have quite the, the hullabaloo with the wet weather that we did last year, it was quite nice. And we kind of got, it kind of combined what I wanted from other races. I said before that I quite enjoyed Baku just because whilst it was a boring race, it was just relatively drama free. And we had the best of that with the first two-thirds of the race here in Monaco, and then we had craziness that we've had in other Grand Prix, but in a non-controversial way. And it kind of, you got you got the two halves of what you wanted in just the right ratio to keep things interesting, and you had it at an iconic track, and you had the great qualifying. And for me, it's kind of like, yeah, that is why Monaco deserves to stay there. That's why it's got the extension. That's why it should never go away, and why all the drivers really want to win it. And despite the fact that Max was able to win by such a lead, it kind of shows, it's a perfect example of why, like him or not, you can't deny that he is good behind the wheel of that Red Bull. And even in such challenging conditions and in Monaco, he's still proven himself to be a top, top driver. Yeah, under conditions that still managed to bite him as well. There were mm. moments where he was beyond his limits. That car was not under control at moments. But for him to still be able to sort of recompose under race conditions, find the grip, find the traction, find a way of getting that car to produce optimum lap time, and then extend a lead over Fernando Alonso, a two-time world champion in his own right, and someone that is one of the most, if not the most experienced driver on the grid, to be able to sort of pull that out. And this is a guy who is He's 25, he's turning 26, he's the same age as me, and that's the one of the worst ways to look at it, is sort of going, what have I done with my life? I haven't won the Monaco Grand Prix twice, won under wet conditions, I haven't won an F1 World Championship twice. But what but, you do there is what you do what Steve Jones did on Channel 4 afterwards, is when they had an interview with Max and say, we're going to go now to an interview with four of us who, between us, have six, well, six uh, Monaco wins, it was Coulthard, Mark Webber, Verstappen, and himself. Mm. You just gotta lump yourself in with the right group. Yeah. I mean he's he is obviously at the extreme end of my age group, but the fact of the matter is that his ability to extra extract that much from a car under such challenging conditions and equally find his limit find where he can push that limit we saw him pushing that limit and then finding the parts where he could sort of 
balance that and it was magnificent really i think really we have to give credit to almost all the drivers for the fact the rain started on the most technical part of the circuit it was the mirror bows and the hairpins which is a hard hard part of the track in the dry and you've got to think there were people like logan Sargent who were on soft who was going through trying to learn how to manage soft tires that must have been so difficult for him as well and again you like we've got max verstappen who was still out on medium tires when a lot of people on hards had already pitted to bin to bin their tires. You've got to think there are some incredible drivers in there that how none of them had a really big crash. I don't know how they did it. To be it. fair, Stroll and Kmeg kept trying. There was a lot of attempts. Yeah. Right. <laughs> There were some teams really trying to make that big crash happen, but ultimately the fact that many of them were able to sort of keep it together and not have those issues really cements the fact that this is arguably some sort of 20 of the best racing drivers in single-seaters in the world. Watching some of the IndyCar this weekend, you'd potentially begin to argue that potentially they don't have a field of 33 very good ones, the amount they kept crashing, but that's a different matter. But yeah, we'll focus on the controversial itself. <laughs> controversial, uh, yeah. Um, Mm. Uh, we'll focus on the Grand Prix and um, obviously before things got underway George was misaligned on the grid managed to avoid a penalty it wasn't really something that gave him a serious uh, advantage they seem to think it was so he was simply just a case of a little bit too far forward in his box but again this stems from the fact that these cars are so hard to line up on the grid now you've got these sort of wheel eyebrows you've got this increased halo you've got the sort of fact you sit so deep in the tub one of the things I noticed when we were at Brands Hatch over the weekend there's an incredible point where you can watch the cars come up Paddock Hill and if you look at some of the photographs you see so much of the drivers exposed at the top of the cars in these older cars going back to sort of the late 70s and through the 80s we're looking at sort of things like the arrows a5 the fact the drivers sit so exposed in the car and you compare that to how the drivers sit in modern f1 cars you then got to think about your sight lines and just how little you're going to be seeing out of these cars i'll try and get some sort of a graphic put together and perhaps chuck it up on the social media feeds because it's it's incredible the comparison that you end up sort of being able to make between the way these two cars operate and the views you're going to get from them so i don't think it's fair to keep sort of slamming drivers for sort of getting grid positions slightly wrong when they're out by an inch or so in a car that is two meters wide nearly four and a bit five meters long they are huge cars and when you compare them to the very diminutive sort of cars that you see even in formula two and formula three it is a struggle but anyway moving on we obviously saw a fairly uneventful opening stint at the front of the field but working your way back that's where a lot of the action seems to stem from where we had the faster aston martin and red bull of stroll and perez causing chaos as they tried to sort of fight their way through on a very tight circuit stroll made a strange move from the inside of mirabeau out into the air hairpin don't know where that came from we sort of dived to the inside then essentially as it became the outside clouted the wall and then sort of bounced back into i think it was sergeant or Albon. it was one of the williams that he sort of bounced back into so almost took out hulkenberg who was trying to go down the inside so we almost went three wide into the hairpin which is something that you don't see at all in formula one these days i didn't think it was physically possible for starters because of how big Not the really. are. yeah so it was quite the move there but a very interesting one and then peace sort of lasted until a hard pushing carlos 
Sainz ran into the back of Esteban Ocon onto the entry to Nouvelle Chicane, lost a front wing end plate, no meatball flag, which was interesting. I should think that Gunter Stein was straight on the radio begging for that to be meatball flag. The amount of times that his team's races last year were hampered by uh, the sort of technical infringement flags. So possibly the rules around that might have been changed a little bit or the way that they're thrown since last year might have changed which uh, used to always really seem to be a K-Mag issue. Um, Perez continued a bit of a demolition derby through the field taking a chunk out of his front wing again running into the back of a guy um, which he was sort of break checked by um, K-Mag actually at one point which allowed Stroll back through after Perez uh, sort of illegally took a spot from Stroll going into the hairpin so K-Mag was like might sort this out break checks him and Stroll's like opportunity thank you um Sergeant by this point was on his third set of tyres. His race literally, as anybody has already said, was sort of a lesson on tyre preservation worth, and not great. noting, though, that uh, they said in Sky Commentary at one point that um, it, Martin was hypothesising, I think, that he was holding everyone up deliberately to try and let Alex get, extend his stint out further because if either one of them was likely to get points, it was more likely to be Albon because of just how Monaco is. And I thought, if that is the strategy... I love that because it's just the only kind of thing you can do in a rookie year with someone is the only time Sergeant would do that and understand. And considering it's Monaco, he's not going to put up too much fight about it. It's like, yeah, that's fine. I'm not going to get much anyway, probably, if I'm being realistic. I'll still have to go for stuff, but I'm happy to play the team game a bit there, which I don't know. You're seeing a lot of stuff with Williams at the moment, both on and off track, which just seem very smart, subtle little ideas that will hopefully build up for something again. You had James Vowles across the weekend being like Sky's go-to person. And it was just, he would just explain, like he'd actually answer the question and he wouldn't try and dodge anything. He would just explain it as it is and get technical, do, then he would do that. And if not, then he wouldn't bother. And obviously he's not going to reveal all their secrets, but it was just kind of refreshing to be like, it's like when you ask a politician a question and they answer it, you're like, oh, you don't want to do that. He's very open in his role. I love to see that. He's someone who's... Mm. One of the things that really came out recently was obviously you can go and do the sort of the factory tour at Williams and they sort of show you around their museum of all the old Williamses and that's roughly about it. You don't see a huge amount of their technical side but one of the things he did recently reveal to some journalists was the fact that the Williams sort of basically the way they're running their factory and the way they're running their design process is about five to ten years possibly even a bit more out of date in certain situations. They are running a very understaffed, under funded and backdated system and the fact they're able to create cars that on occasion are still able to challenge for points against the mod these modern cars and is, score points and score points is hugely impressive and i think this is going to be something that potentially the openness of ours is really going to sort of help change the public perception of Williams. They're not just this historic team that trundles around the back and is a bit slow. It's a team that for years has really struggled to put things together and is going to give them a bit more of this sort of enamorment with the public, hopefully drive forward some increased sponsorship and really give it a chance to push its way back into being a team in proper contention with things. Because ultimately they've got a decent mechanical team. They've got two certainly in Albon, they've got a very good driver there. If you look at what he was able to extract from Yuki last season, especially looking at Yuki's performance this season, the way that he's able to develop a driver, he's obviously used that as a chance to sort of turn a bit of that focus inwards and has hugely stepped up his driving. The way Albon's driving this season compared to last is remarkable and there's been a marked sort of step up and change. If he's able to work a bit of that into Sargent as well, they'll have a very competitive team and hopefully if they can get a competitive car around them, a lot better but that's williams we'll focus back on the grand prix itself 
where we sort of fast forward to the point that rain is now looming and you see drivers reporting all drops at turn three and everything's starting to sort of get a bit wet around the sort of casino square and then into the very technical section. Casino square in itself is a slippy enough turn. You're not actually racing on tarmac through there. You're racing across the sort of laid surface that's outside the sort of main casino. It's a very sort of tricky one to do because all of a sudden the terrain changes and you also you've got this got weird bump immediately you've got to avoid immediately after you sort of go through the right on the run down to Mirabeau you've got this tree root that's grown under the circuit and caused this lump that you see all the drivers seemingly weaving down the straight to avoid and there's very good reason for that and yeah Bottas and Stroll were the earliest to pit for the Inters almost as sort of the test bunnies for how this is going to pay out and when the rain fell it really deluged down on this eastern end of the circuit the hairpin taking the brunt of it really and then it it was a bold call from Aston to put Alonso onto mediums again. It sort of failed to pay off. They didn't think it'd be hanging around for that long. They were looking to potentially go for the survive and drive method, but that did not really work at all. Um, but he was still able to hold off um, his position. I had enough of a position advantage ahead of Ocon to pit again for the Inters. Meanwhile, Ferrari left the two, their two drivers out for quite a while. We saw both of them ending up in the runoff areas at points. Signs really struggling to find traction, twice ending up in the runoff areas. Eventually, the Scuderia brought the two in, double stacked, weirdly. Very bold call. Didn't seem to hamper the stops, though. A bit slow for Signs on entry, but otherwise fine, which was quite the miracle for them. And then the order settled down once all were on wets. Although last one was Kevin Magnussen who was running worn hards for a long old time I don't know what the plan was there not a clue what the plan was but he was still able to really keep on track it, he was fighting a lot of the time like he was taking some unique lines especially through Mirabeau Bass and into Portier he was pretty much riding the curb where there was a lot of runoff and he was able to find some dry to basically get that car turned stopped and ready to go for Portier it was an incredible drive from him and one that really ought to not go sort of understated uh, after this point things started taking a bit of a downturn for Yuki Tsunoda who had been running quite comfortably in the points up until this moment where he suffered a brake issue came out of nowhere and ruined his race and the team were like can you step up the brakes we're under threat from the McLaren's from behind and he was like no I, I, I flatly cannot and he was starting to suffer a major braking issue at that point losing pressure losing sort of actual retardation through the car not the only driver through the weekend that would see some major issues with their brakes my friend uh, Fred Shepard completely lost the brakes on his boss through Mustang heading into paddock at Brands Hatch and just to descend it into the gravel and just use the kitty litter to bring that one to a stop. So a weekend for brake failure. Not available in Monaco. Not available in Monaco. No kitty litter at all there. And by the end of it, Verstappen took the checkered flag with a 27.9 second lead over Alonso, which sort of wraps up the Grand Prix as a whole. There was no lasting things to be handed out. It's it's a curious one though, and see if you agree at it, mate, but he wins by 27 seconds and yet you're not disappointed with the race. You're weirdly happy with it. Well, or is I that just me? <laughs> like, I obviously, you know what you want to happen, but... You can't fully, I guess, take into the fact that he almost had a half-second lead because Alonso did pick twice. So there is time lost in that. But at the same time, Verstappen was at one stage in the wet two seconds quicker than the rest of the pack going round. So he did sort of create that gap him, himself as well as, but I think, yeah, it, it prob probably was not as big a gap as it could have been if they had just pitted Alonso the once. It did bother me because it was one of those things where you could see you've got to nail this decision and if they'd waited one lap longer, 
they could have made the right decision and we could have at least maybe had a shorter gap between second and first, even if Max had still won. But I think that the decision not to put him onto Inters when he went in the first time is what ultimately did take any chances of a win away from him. And you think, okay, you've got nothing to kind of... you. you you kind of got everything gained, nothing to lose because you've got what you can do. You're going to be in P2 anyway because P3, you're going to be able to keep that back, you know, realistically. At that point, if you're all taking risks, you don't know what's going to happen. You might as well gamble. And so it was just, it was frustrating, but it's it's coming. It's coming. We should be happy with the P2 for a long time. Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, I mean, at least Alonso didn't fall back behind Ocon in any way. Even if the gap was closer you couldn't have got off the racing line to even attempt an overtake so not DRS down a start finish straight like Lando did on Yuki you never know you could do but you had a very Yuki was really suffering I mean he was 50 seconds behind whoever it was in front of him so you could tell he was suffering but it's also Max Verstappen yeah but that's why I want to see it (laughs) I think, and if and if it goes terribly wrong, you've got Esteban Ocon winning in Monaco, so we we're all a winner. I don't think he would have risked risked in the rain. Not that I can say risked with my risen line. That does lead us nicely into winners and spinners, though, which we'll keep with you for a second there, anyway, because it's you've gone straight down the middle there with your choice. You've kind of explained it, but do you have anything else to add as to why you've chosen Max? Yeah, I'll just sort of add on to it. I think, obviously, he came from nowhere to put up that blinding sector three time in to take pole position, you know, pushing the limit and even sort of clipping the walls. He stayed he stayed out on the medium tyres as long as those, those on hards, even when the rain came, which shows how well he can sort of do tyre management. He then, obviously, pitted for inches and, like I said, was two seconds faster than everyone at one point. The man at the minute is virtually unbeatable, and his closest rival binned it at Sandbo in qualifying and came home with home with no points, which opens up the gap now in the championship. Is it something like thirty nine points? Mm-hmm. It's going to take someone really special, I think, at the minute with the form that Verstappen is in to really beat him, because he's almost got it all. He's got the speed, the tire management, the car behind him. He's, I, I mean, think... I, I know I'm asking for too much here, but it's it's something we'll talk about in our Spain preview. But Mercedes upgrades, we don't really know what how how effective they've been. We'll find out in Spain more. But, but it's kind of I know it's too much to ask, but you almost want their upgrades to be astronomical so that they can go up a bit further. And if Aston Martin can't do anything about Red Bull, maybe Mercedes can somehow leapfrog and at least push them a bit forward. So even if they still don't win and beat them it's more of a challenge and Max actually has to work through it a little bit more. And obviously he worked very hard for this win because of the changing conditions, but you, it's kind of, if Perez isn't going to be the one to beat him, then who's going to at least challenge him to keep it interesting week in, week out? It's just touching upon, because we haven't really spoken about it, those um, Mercedes upgrades, they really didn't work at, at Monaco, I think. Well, it's kind of a hard place to measure them though at the same time. It's a really it's... hard place to measure them, and Lewis crashed, which then led obviously to the crane where everyone. Yeah, it was the same thing with Perez the then. <laughs> it's, it was the same as, as Perez, yeah. But 
I I don't know. I think maybe they thought they were going to get much more sort of they would learn more about that like upgrade Alpine at the start of the year. We kind of we don't know where we are. And we're still not sure now that we've done some testing and we've done some racing. We're not, we, we don't know yet. No, I think Monaco was not the right place to do it. I know. Well, to be fair, they were going to bring them into Imola. So, so they were never planned to, to debut them here. Yeah. Yeah. That's obviously not, not their fault. And I kind of, I understand why they did it so that they're not sort of two weeks then behind or three weeks behind on, on where they are sort of with their upgrades. But, it, it just really did not work out for them. I mean, still, P... What was it? P4 for oh, Lewis. P4, P5, and, yeah. yeah. P4. So it wasn't awful at the same time. The result was good, but I don't think... It was unnecessary it, because of the upgrade. Yeah, because you saw both really quite struggle and I guess there were a lot of people then out of place as well. Then maybe... Mm. They they ended up getting that better result. Then, but then they didn't make. Who a, knows? <laughs> yeah, and they didn't at the end of the day do anything wrong then in the race. And so you still got to be there to capitalise on the yeah, chaos that comes. Exactly. The crucial way of thinking about the Mercedes thing is one: this wasn't a circuit where they were going to get much data from him, but. Equally, they look like they've had a stronger weekend than they in reality had. Ferrari did fumble a few of their strategy calls, as is to be expected. That late rain call really threw the back towel in for Ferrari. His colour sciences uh, team yeah. radio amused me so much. She was like, eh, five minutes, maybe we don't know. It could be anything like, you're Ferrari. You're meant yeah. to know at least a little bit more. Or yeah. if you're going to say that, don't have that on the broadcast radio. For yeah. And I think the net result is that it's made Mercedes look to the sort of average viewer a lot stronger than in reality they could well have been through this weekend. We saw Hamilton having a few problems with it. The car really wasn't coping brilliantly with those situation. It wasn't sort of able to challenge too much against the field. We had points where it looked like Hamilton could have been chasing down Ocon, but just wasn't really able to get close. And I love Ocon, great guy, decent driver, but he's no Lewis Hamilton. So he shouldn't be beating him. It was kind yeah. of like Japan last year. It's like he could get close, but he couldn't mm. quite. And, and again, position. Yeah, wasn't able to really get that much closer. You're expecting it to have really closed the gap in. But crucially, what this does mean that Mercedes are now just a sole point behind Aston Martin in the the constructor standings, which suggests the sort of growth they've had through the season hasn't been too shabby. The way they've sort of closed that points gulf over time, they've leapfrogged, well, they've come close at points. I know in Saudi, they were pretty much tied on points, both teams on 38. And then Aston Martin kept pulling ahead a bit. But since Miami... Mercedes has been closing in again. So it is, it is also the benefit of, of having two drivers in your team rather than just one with Aston Martin. Yeah, admittedly, Aston Martin are pinning a huge amount of hopes on Fernando Alonso, whereas Mercedes do, on a regular basis, have sort of Russell and Hamilton coming in. And yeah, I mean, you look at their points from this weekend, uh, let's see, for Mercedes, 23 points, Aston Martin having to make do with 18. And again, we go back to Miami, Aston Martin, 15, Mercedes, 20. Baku, um, you've got Mercedes getting 20, Aston Martin getting 22. Again, it's it's nip and tuck between the two teams as it goes on. But again, if they've got a little bit of data coming out of Monaco, it's not a race wasted and equally scoring more than their nearest rivals in the championship. It's not a race wasted. Yes, there are better circuits to debut your new bits of bodywork at, but equally they did they were forced to play the hand they were they wanted to play. And I think that's 
it's worth bearing all the other elements into consideration when you, if you want to slate Mercedes or if you want to praise them for what they achieved, there's there's extenuating. So I think that's the thing. We're not really sure which to do because of yeah. everything. So it's kind of like, it's sort of like oh, you did well, but also, yeah, yeah, or you did badly, but yeah, it's, yeah. Getting, it's, getting back on topic, though, you've got someone who I'm not familiar with who is still under consideration for your video. I'm not familiar with this driver. Obviously, Ellie May's gone for Verstappen, the, a driver that who's genuinely worth praising off this weekend. He's driven phenomenally, and I think the sort of the S tier. Look at him buying for time. He had through qualifying is worth mentioning. Timo, I won't spoil your one, but it's annoyingly going to cover one of the drivers I wanted to praise, which sort of leaves me quite short on sort of drivers to really pick from in that sort of top end of the field that stood out for me. So I don't know. Um, but, uh, taking away. Um, Yuki's brake failure. I think it he did have a very good Monaco. He did have a very good weekend, actually. If we look at his weekend holistically, yeah, screw it. I'll move him from drivers, other drivers worth a mention, up to um, my winners. Then Yuki Sonoda, my winner for this weekend. I think, yeah, he running really well in the points. He was sort of fending off a lot of attacks. He was sort of relatively until his brakes started to go quite calm collected and sort of focused at getting the most out of what's ultimately a bit of a pig of a car and speaking to people inside alpha tower they weren't hopeful ahead of this weekend it wasn't one they were looking forward to and the fact that they were almost about to walk away from this with two points which given how tight things are at their end of the field where they are let's see currently on two points they're able, they could have been in with doubling their chances and putting ahead of williams on their sole point it would have been a good weekend. It would have put them within sort of touching distance of Alfa Romeo, which is, it's it's not a big thing, but it's big in their part of the world. Um, yeah, it, this could have been a great weekend, but ultimately it was it was the car that let Yuki down. This wasn't this wasn't a, th- a fault of his. And even when that rain... if you're Yuki, that's what you want if you're going to have a bad ending. You want yeah. it to be not anything you've done, which knowing Yuki, especially from where he started out in F1 to now, is mm. reassuring. Essentially, what it's doing is lining him up to be a very good Ferrari driver of really good driver <laughs> performance, let down a bit by the hardware you're given or your team. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, the, the Ferrari talent scouts will be looking at him going, he's just the mentality we're looking for. Come here, my son. You already live in Italy. Let's move you down the road. Um, yeah. So we'll move from my freshly picked winner to Timo, one that's, one that's surely quite obvious. Yes, I've gone for Alpine, which, as you say, obvious, but it's quite amusing at the same time. The timing of this could not have been any better, considering what Rossi has been saying about them and the and the team as general not being anywhere close to where they need to be, and just giving them a lot of grief. Essentially, and Otmar's claimed that he's not had a conversation with them yet, although how much we believe about that is another matter entirely. And it's kind of like you've got Ocon on the podium again. And you've got Gasly in T7, also solidly decent for where they've been recently. Double points on one of the toughest race tracks in the world, where you have to do a lot in qualifying as well. Like Obviously, you had Perez taken out of the equation, but even then, you'd still have Ocon potentially, what, P4, which is not anything to be shaking a stick at for bad reasons. You're ahead of Ferrari and Aston Martin and both Mercedes at that point. That's, that's pretty damn good. So it's... Uh, it's quite amusing that it, it happens now and hopefully Rossi just kind of quiets down for a little bit and maybe focuses on his side of this let Otmar and the drivers get on with what they know best. It's 
it's progress for Alpine. And I think you mentioned it earlier on in the podcast. It's, it's hard to know how much of it it's going to be mm. consistently, but it's good to see these flashes at least of potential. And equally, it's that option that we could see this and another team just mixing it up a bit around that sort of P4, P3 sort of area. We think back to the last time we had a really fun competition at the top of the um, championships. We look back to 2020, 2021, especially 2020, when we had the likes of Asta was racing point at that point in time, really competing at the top of things. And all of a sudden, Renault coming out of nowhere with some incredible races. McLaren nowhere. Yeah, with Ocon. McLaren seemingly nowhere. And equally the same with Ferrari, a bit out of whack. And all of a sudden, the championship for constructors became hugely interesting despite the fact that Lewis had very early on wrapped up the 2020 championship all of a sudden there was this incredible sort of tension amongst that sort of P4 through P6 in the driver standings and the constructors because that's where a lot of excitement really quickly stemmed from so I think we could be looking forward to that kicking in again just as the potentially the championship points so the championship get boring if the step wraps it up early but there's going to be other things to keep an eye on as an F1 fan that are worth sort of knowing about and being sort of intrigued about early on so you understand we need these other aspects for the championship otherwise we're all going to lose the will to live essentially Mm. which is probably how all three of your drivers felt Ellie makes you couldn't pick one spinner here this weekend you've gone for three yeah I'll only really mainly talk about one um I mean I, I did say Perez but I'll let Jesse speak about him um and I haven't really said much about Stroll as well, but he did not have a good weekend. Um, but I've gone for Carlos Sainz. It was just a bit of a scruffy weekend for him. I mean, he crashed out in FP2. He didn't do too badly in qualifying. He was in fifth, but really, if you think about it, he should have been in front of, in front of Ocon, which would have then put him in third when Leclerc was penalised, and then, which you know, all things going well, should have put him on a podium at Monaco again. In the race, he was then asked to get a move on by his engineers and then ended up breaking his front wing, going into the back of Ocon at Nobel Chicane. Um, When the rain came, it wasn't entirely his fault, I think, with that bit. It was just a bit of bad luck that he just lost grip and slid off the track, which then put him behind Charles, who was then in sixth and where they then were then right behind each other he was hindered when they had to double stack him for the inters um and he lost out of place then to Gasly as well which then put him down to eighth so it's a, a mixture of sort of a scruffy weekend on his side and a bit of bad luck as well but it's it just was not great for him at all I mean, it's also seen him lose P5 in the driver's standings to Russell this weekend as well. There's been a few changes in the way the driver's standings lines up. Obviously, at the front, Verstappen holds on to first. Perez holds on to second. The, the gap to... Um, uh, words if we get them in the right order would be great um, the gap behind to Alonso is getting a lot closer as the races go by Hamilton's still in fourth but Russell now takes fifth signs sixth Leclerc back in seventh Stroll eighth Ocon making some incredible leaps from twelfth to ninth now in the standings proving just how valuable those points are going to be as we get into the midfield and something that's likely going to keep developing as the season goes on a strong performance from Gasly season hold on to tenth then Norris despite picking up points just can't compete with the efforts 
of the two Alpines ahead of him now drops from ninth down to 11th. Hulkenberg, again, down a further place, scoring no points this weekend. Piastri, mopping up points, actually. Really good for him this weekend. Sees him move from 14th to 13th. And while Bottas drops down from uh, swapping places, and then behind them, it's uh, same as ever for Joe in 15th, Sonoda 16th, Magnus in 17th, Albon in 18th, and De Vries and Sargent swap places. This is because neither of them really have points, so it's all based off of essentially count back as to who's got the most low positions and vice versa. So Sargent now takes P20 and De Vries 19 after a decent weekend, actually, from De Vries. It's one that's, I wouldn't say it's solidified his career for the rest of the season but it was enough it's to hopefully learn. a sign of things to come and move in the right direction it's, maybe it's, keep his seat past Austria it's quelled the rumours and essentially Red Bull have said now nah, we're not going to bid him off this season or mid-season at least I think is crucially the thing and it's sort of, it's given believe it when I see it believe it when I see it but it's reportedly given him some breathing room um, Timo your spinner it's got to be house for me because of all of the calamity and chaos of the weekend as just didn't manage to capitalise on any of it, really. And it was their 150th Grand Prix. It could, would have been nice if they could have at least got a point somewhere. And it just, I mean, I don't know what strategy, if any, they really had for any of the drivers at any point in the weekend. And it just seemed quite a bit of a mess. I mean, K-Mag was playing dodging for the stroll for the most part and then just retire. Hulk had a great start, but then had to pit immediately. And it was just kind of buggered from there, really. And it was just... Just messy, just messy, messy, messy. So it was, it was a shame because everyone else, every literally every other driver, every other team, you could think at some point, ooh, there's potential there. This They might not get it because not everyone can, but they're kind of primed or at least looking. I would mention Williams earlier with that little strategy they're having with Alvin and Sargent. They're kind of primed there like, we're going to prioritise one of them. We can maybe do something. You had Yuki up there for a long time. You had McLaren waiting to pounce. It Alfa Romeo just kind of lurking near the bottom of the points so that if anything did happen, they would be far enough away from it to avoid it, but then could capitalise on it. And Haas just wasn't anywhere, and it was just... Ah, just Haas. Yeah, another another poor weekend of being Haas, but I'd argue the worst person to be out of that entire field would have been my spinner, as anyway mentioned. Perez, it's a messy weekend with some unforced mm-hmm. errors. These are errors you don't Especially expect for creeping in. There last year. Yeah, for a guy who won on this circuit last year, but equally... For a driver who's what the second, third most experienced driver on the grid for Grand Prix raced in, these are not errors we want to see. And is this possibly the pressure of a championship challenge starting to get to Perez? I don't know. Or equally, is it a case of the fact that that car is now developing away from him? Are we seeing a car that, as it grows through the season, is going to become less? It's developing a you're not the number one driver in this team syndrome and all the bad stuff's going to start happening to you. Yeah, it's it's sort of looking like a Mark Webber chassis more than it is anything else. And yeah, it's it's. I think time will tell. I think there's going to be certain races where we potentially see Perez really come back into the fall. But again, we're relying on them being street circuits. But he did get that twice circuit. by Max though. Yeah, that's, Which is that's not a good look. And bear in mind the fact that when that happened to Ricciardo against Norris and that McLaren, Everyone was quick to call Ricardo washed. So it's only a matter of time before that sort of thing starts tainting Perez. And it's it's easy for that to very quickly start influencing and impacting the way drivers see themselves and how that impacts their performance. Equally, we saw that impacting Ricardo when he was at McLaren. We saw the sort of the negative mindset that really started to creep in, possibly from McLaren inside, but equally because of the way that you start being perceived, you're putting yourself on a global stage 
practically for half the weekends of any given year um, for an extended period of time under a huge amount of scrutiny, that's going to start getting to you. But equally, it does have the positive impact. You've got to look at how over the moon Esteban Ocon was when he sort of hopped out of the car, was given a microphone in front of David Coulthard. And again, he, he sort of piled out a phrase that is known to every Esteban Ocon fan on social media. Esty bestie on the podium, baby. That is, that, that's literally a line that I would have possibly said in a predictions round. And this impact... If you thought public, it was likely. It's unlikely he would have listened to it. Plus. I'd like to think he might. No, I was more thinking if it was likely to happen in the first place because none of us predicted him getting on the podium. None of us predicted it, no. But the argument is that it's one of those things that the public perception to a driver is just as important in the way their mindset runs as well as the way they sit within a team. And that could be something that begins to have a knock-on impact with Perez as the season develops and might be something we see hit a lot harder after summer when you get all the rumours start to circle the rumours all starts up the whole sort of driver silly season begins to sort of fire on all cylinders and then all of a sudden you've got that social media hype on top of it it's going to be very interesting to see how this and a few other sort of duff races Australia qualifying is a big one start to sort of add up to what we see from Perez later on this year well Morocco is going to have a long lasting effect on Perez for the fact that as well this is also his last gearbox so he's going to have to take a penalty at some point for a new one because that's not going to last the rest of the season so you know one small crash at Monaco has really a big effect for later down the line as well we saw that with Leclerc last year as well I mean, looking at the next sort of races to come, Spain, Canada, Austria, Britain, all fairly easy on gearboxes, provided you don't stick it in the wall. But Hungary, which is just Monaco with runoff areas, very heavy on gearboxes. So all of a sudden, we've got a run of another. So he's already done Monaco on this fresh gearbox, another four races on top of that, and then possibly Hungary. And then we've still got Belgium on top of that to round out this half of the season. We could see Sergio Perez opening up the next half of the season with a new gearbox and starting at sort of second half of the season off on the back of silly season with a grid penalty for a new gearbox. That's not something you need as a driver for your mindset, for your mentality moving forwards. It's there's definitely something to sort of start piecing together as an argument there. I will just go on and say one last thing of drivers that are worth a mention there. Piastri for me, just because it was his first time racing in F1 at Monaco in mixed conditions in a McLaren. He got a point. It was good driving and potentially a lot of well potential as to what he was capable of down the line when he's got a better car in him and if he's he said in himself in an interview this isn't the place where he would have liked to be tested on all these mixed conditions and having to drive on these tires in the wet but it's good experience for him and who knows how well that will serve him of all the current young drivers on the grid i think he's one that is most likely to still be there in 10 15 years time it's hard to call these things, but you can see that. And he's still very young. And you just think McLaren definitely want to keep him around for a long time. And other teams will then probably get interested in him in the same way that they're still kind of maybe interested in Lando. So I just think that was it was nice to see that as well. And he's pushing Lando a little bit. He was in P9 at one point, And I think it was just Lando got him towards the end. So that was it was good, good to see. There was definitely a lot to sort of write home about for Piastri, even though it's one point, it's not huge. I don't can't remember how that impacts him in the driver standings. I don't think it does anything huge for him with regards to where it moves him points. Well, it's a quick position, I think, to P13 or something along those lines. 
Um, yeah, it moves him up a position, but I don't know how close that puts him to the driver ahead of him, which is a, mm-hmm. essentially a now descending Hulkenberg. Let's have a quick quick look at the statistics that I've got. Uh, Piastri, 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 where are you? Here, he's now on five points, Hulkenberg on six. So yeah, he's one sort of P10 finish away, which isn't off the books for McLaren, away from catching up to Hulkenberg and then really start to chew his way up into those leagues. You've got six points, Hulkenberg, and then your next driver after that is um well actually it's a, it's a long old run up to by the look of things on 14 points gasly but yeah if you can start to solidify your position above those drivers that are always constantly squabbling for those 1.2 point finishes things are going to look quite good for piastri and this is possibly a good starter to sort of really just getting those little points finishes and just proving that yeah you're the guy that can and just holding on to that whatever it is p13 place or something talking of points that are looking good for people i did all right in the predictions this week i got the highest score of the three of us which is remarkable considering one of us is ellie may who usually clears up and screws us over accordingly jesse but i managed to get three points from max pole on max win and to do his fastest lap which this fastest lap thing of mine is happening a lot quicker than i was expecting him to. I predicted George, he got it a lot sooner than I thought. I went, oh, try Lewis, that won't happen for a little bit then. Two races, I think that took me. Yeah, two so races. I'm Three really, race weekends, two I, races, I, I, but yeah. I'm going to have to go a little bit more left field for my next one on that one to see if it can take a bit longer. I'm trying to talk myself out of points for some reason. Go for one of the go. Ferraris. Ferraris for the fastest lap, I don't yeah. think is... Yeah, that, that might be more one. challenging. Uh, that'll go one of two ways. Either it won't happen at all for the rest of the season, or I'll get it straight away in Spain next week. The best thing I like um, about this is, aside from the fact that we've already, um, you and I have already baked in our predictions, because you want an Alonso home win, I want a Sainz home win, which means that we'll forgive you the your usual pattern, but it does mean that you've got to predict for Spain, Ocon P3. Yes, I did think that yesterday. Are you also going to swap? Are you simply just going to swap Alonso and Verstappen? So Verstappen's going to come second. Yeah, I'm going to have to think about that because I, I might have that as a world prediction, maybe, and cover myself off that way just to just to see. But we'll, I'll get to that later. Neil Poir for you this weekend, though, Jesse. Very unfortunate. A lot of close, but no cigars. Half of Red Bull um, suffered, which means that I could give myself a half <laughs> point. But we don't do integers, which is annoying. We and, don't. We don't. Yeah. Do that. Russell wasn't Two far point. off. Uh, P3 at points. He wasn't too far no, off. No, that's different from getting P3. No, no. Yeah. So, no. Yeah. Two points for you, Ellie Mae, though. You did still manage to score despite being incredibly Leclerc heavy. And remarkably, you get a point for him not crashing, which I was willing him to just have a little crash. Just kind of like K-Mag around the back of the grid, kind of. A little crash like that, because it would count. But he didn't, unfortunately. And you got Alonso second, which does see you out front overall in the standing now between the three of us you've got 16 points so far which is redonk and i can just about see you on 10 points in p2 and uh, jesse you i'm i'm, a I'm not even sure off. which team to compare you to at this point you've got five points which means you're scoring less than a point a race if we go yeah. per race ellie may 17 timo 10 me five so yeah it's it's Ugh, not good not you've got good a bit of work to do yeah um mm, f1 fantasy review wise though for this race the top three just for monaco we had mid-bed racing out of 220 points oh that's one of yours i was wondering yeah. second place lacresse also on 220 points so count back i'm guessing there i'm i'm not entirely sure how that works but that's he's one of my friends from you yeah michael k three is in the third with 200 points as for us the teams i knew were ours brt yamaha p4 for jesse 196 points emt racing p5 with 190 
And then me, I'm also here, P11 on the curves, 176 points. I'm getting it. I had an all right weekend. I was happy with this. I'm just happy to be here. Overall, we've got Arg with 1,816 points in P1. Alex H9B2 in second place, a little way off with 1,779 points. And then at Francisco Rose, 1,766 points in P3. Ellie, may you be happy here because overall you're still leading out of all of us. I think we're in P9 with 1,544 points. Jeffercake okay, Racing, P10 with 1,409. And again, I'm also here, P16 on the curves, 1,274 points. I'm doing what we call a slow burn. And if I remember, I may turn the wick up at some point and actually do some good, but I don't think that's also likely. I need to also remember to take the Fries and Bossas out of my fantasy. That's really not helping you, that. No, nor is Hulkenberg either. Yeah, I mean, you need to stop are... choosing drivers that you like. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah. BRT Yamaha scoring P4 this week has done absolutely nothing for its overall standings. It's still 31st, joint last, I think that makes it. Oh, no, it's not joint last. It, it, it's it's, not, it's not moved. It's 31. It's on 31. So I'm ahead of, please subscribe and experiment underdog, but I'm, I'm still way down the bottom. Oh, so you're essentially right. last, considering what those two teams are. Yeah. So I'm, out of us three, leading and last. No. No, I'm leading you. Midbeds Racing is just uh, ahead of you by 24 points. And well, I'm not too far behind you on yeah. 140 points shy of you with Jaffa Cake Racing as well. So you're sort of stuck in a sandwich between me and me. Well, that disturbing image, we're going to end the podcast, I think. No, we're not. We've usually got some other bits, haven't we? We've still got um, Constructors really? Countdown to squeeze in. Uh, I wasn't on the notes. Well, it's time. So we've done those ages ago. No, I did the drivers' standings. No, but done... it's usually a lot higher up in the on the notes. So it usually just... would come in a lot higher up on the notes. But anyway, it's time for constructors' countdown. Williams stay dead last for the moment, just a point behind Alpha Tauri, a team close to scoring something this weekend. Eighth place is inhabited by Alpha Romeo, just two points behind potential partner in the future, Haas in seventh with eight points. A gap opens up to McLaren in sixth with 17 points, and after a much-needed podium and double points finish, Alpine overtake the Woking Alpha for fifth, now on 35 points, more than doubling their previous points tally. Fourth place still belongs to Ferrari, who are getting left behind by the battle ahead. A meagre haul of 12 points this week, not doing them many favours. Third place and just a point away from championship rivals and engine customers, Mercedes enjoy a strong double points finish and more than Aston Martin could fetch as they sit on just 120 points and racing away, extending their lead further, Red Bull on 249. Anyway, yeah, there we go. Constructors countdown. We've done it. We've squeezed it in. No, no harm lost there. Um, so it's time to conclude this week's episode, or say one part one of the three of this week's episodes. There'll be three parts of this week. We've got this, the review of Monaco. We've got some feeder series to look back on, and we've also got our preview for the Spanish Grand Prix. But in the meantime, uh, Timo, where can you be found? You can find me over on Is It First on the Curbs Natural Rights Podcast, Paddock Sorority, and Instagram, where there is a whole sleuth of new content on literally all of them, actually, this week. It's a busy old time for me, and it's all very nice and varied and good, jolly good stuff. Jesse, where can people find you? 
I can be found over on Instagram and Twitter as at Jesse on Cars. You can find me on my YouTube channel, which I'm slowly firing back up when I get a chance to edit some content, uh, which is also Jesse on Cars. There should be some MG content coming to it. There'll probably also be some Jimny content returning to it whenever I find out what's gone wrong with the exhaust on the car. Um, and you can also find me writing for Classic Car Weekly. I can't remember what I've got coming up next. Um, I know this weekend I'm going rallying in a Fiat 124 Sports Spider and then taking the midget from London to Brighton, leading out a race there. So that'll be fun. If he survives. Billy May, where can people find you? Uh, I can be found on my, not on mine, on the podcast Instagram page where I'm doing the graphics, the track reviews, track reviews, track guides. Can you tell I'm tired? And also, I have a few posts uh, attended Cornwall's on Savile Row and uh, the Master Six Store at Brands Hatch. If you want to see any content from that, go check our Instagram page. She got through it, guys. She got through it. And now we can officially end this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back very soon. Bye.